This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week is another News Roundup episode. On it, we discuss events in Latin America, the latest presidential contenders, professional wrestling, and the ongoing adventures of Trump. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Patrick. I'm Patrick. Donald. Hey, it's Donald from uh, Communist League Tampa and IWW. Lexi. It's Lexi from Russia with Love. And tonight we're joined by Rory. Hey, it's Rory from Communist League Tampa. Okay. So let's get into it. Uh, first thing, uh, our recurring segment, who is running for president this week? Yeah, all right. So this week, well, it's not really this week, but recently, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Last year, apparently, somebody wrote an article. Did you say Dwayne, uh, the, Rock, the, Dwayne the Rock Johnson? Yeah, The Rock, yeah. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. The people's album, the people's champion. Yeah, yeah the people's champion. Uh, may soon be the people's president. Do you smell what the rock is cooking? Someone apparently last year just wrote an article suggesting it. And he took it, apparently he inspired him to take it seriously. And according to the Washington quote, uh, Post, what he said on it was, quote, I don't want to be flippant, he added, about what his platform might be, such as giving joke responses like, quote, we'll have three days off for a weekend or, quote, no taxes. So, I mean, actually, the, I mean, the first one actually isn't that bad as a proposal. I mean, I would support him if he ran on that. He's, I mean, what would like where 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 are his politics? Is he anything like the McMahon's? I mean, I think to get up in like the WWF, you kind of have to like kiss the McMahon's ass. Um, That's what like, I would imagine. Because like I know I know like uh, my man Jesse Ventura, he tried to organize unionize the WWF in the eighties. Um, but <laughs> <Jesse Ventura. laughs> yeah, awesome. that, hey, hey, he yeah. really did that. He really yeah, did he, that. Yeah, he he had um, the unions who control the stadiums on board. They were ready to basically lock McMahon okay. out if 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 there was a strike. But awesome. somebody ratted him out. Holy and, uh, fucking shit! Guess who? Hulk Hogan. Yep. Oh, I call Hulk Hogan. And that was that was being piece of shit. Yeah, he seems like the man who the the man who destroyed Gawker. The man who destroyed Gawker (laughs) also destroyed the WWF uh, wrestlers union. Um, And apparently, yeah, and apparently um, that was right before his star rose in the WWF. Hmm. So they bought him off. So that that gives you a taste. Although oddly enough, like apparently Jesse and McMahon like got along pretty well. Like McMahon didn't take it super personally because he liked Jesse, and he understood wow. why he was doing it. 
But that's kind of how it is with like WWF. Like you, you kind of have to be in tight with them. So yeah, he's yeah his his politics are probably. But the you know like the McMahons. I actually don't know what their politics are, but they did. I remember like McMahon was. Yeah, McMahon once told Jesse like, if you run for president, like I'll, you can come on my show anytime you want, and I'll you know we'll, we'll basically endorse you. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So like the Rock. I mean, this isn't well, the shittiest one I've heard. I mean, as I, far as I, I, I need to go back. I need to going back going back to wrestling union efforts because back in the WWF in the nineties they had like a Baudrillard unionization subplot that was really just a, a fabricated fantasy of a union unionization campaign carried out by Mick Foley and that was the first time I heard of what a union was. I just need to really? say that. Yeah, it was wow. in this Bo- was this in in this Baudrillard copy of this real unionization attempt by Jesse Ventura that I just found out about right now. That's that's interesting. Um, that's life. Because I know you know, kind of with like the structure of professional wrestling, there's like kayfabe, where you know, like there there yeah. is like a there there is like this weird blend of like reality and fiction that happens there. And I wonder how much truth there was to like McFoley's efforts. Um, I mean, I I you know, he does seem like the kind of guy. I he don't does. Know, but I, you know, like I and when I was watching him and as a young young budding like little little confused person i (laughs) i I really like i i definitely projected like you know his name is mankind you know what i mean he's he had this sense of universality (laughs) and he was a deranged like he looked like an ex-tech worker or something so it had this like kind of anti-corporate feel about it yeah like like mick foley's stuff was actually really like avant-garde because he had like three different personalities that's right like I remember like one time he actually came out and like he was two of them at once. Like one half was Buddy Love or I think Buddy Love, I think it was. And the other Cactus one was Jack. And, and the other one, well, there was the hippie one. There was Cactus Jack and there was oh, Mankind. Right. And half yeah. of them was the hippie one and half of them was Mankind and he fought himself in the ring. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really it's wild stuff. Um, and, there, and I think in a way you could also actually kind of compare um, the because Mankind was very much into like, or Mick Foley was very much into like that masochistic style of wrestling where like you fall on tags oh my God. and you beat yeah. the shit out of yourself. And that, I mean, is that that different from like, like video performance art in like the 1980s? I don't think so. I don't think like, so. I, no, this guy is, is like, you know, performance art Jesus in wrestling. I don't know. We, we should get, we should have a, a Marxist uh, professional wrestling podcast and make millions of dollars off of it. <laughs> we could do, we could do an episode. I mean, I, I don't remember that though. Cause I, I watched wrestling around that time. Like I was watching during like the attitude era. Well, let's but... fucking watch WrestleMania for an episode of Swampside chats. <laughs> uh, I'd be down. Let's get um, Jesse Ventura on the show. I like that yes. idea. Yes. Let's get, because Jesse Ventura didn't buy into Trump. Jesse Ventura's like, oh, Trump, you know, he's he's all in it for himself, you know. He's just another politician like any of them. So, you know, that, he, actually, he, I actually kind of have some respect for him just for that. Can we try to introduce him to <laughs> Marxism? <laughs> I mean, that that's my dream, really. That's my dream. No, because... no, I... no, here's the thing. Like, he, I, like, I grew up kind of where he's from, and so I kind of, like, I get his mindset. Like I think I could actually like win him over to like because um, he um, he also did that for Bernie too. Like he wasn't just anti-Trump. Like he basically went and met with Bernie, and as soon as it became clear that Bernie wasn't going to break with the Democrats, he basically said "fuck Bernie." So, yeah, that's that's like respectable. Yeah, that's more uh, principled than the entire political class. 
Yeah, yeah. I remember when he got yeah. elected. He got didn't he get elected to be governor of Minnesota? And he was just like, Oh, I tried to change things, but the whole system's too corrupt, so I got out of it. Like Yeah, and then he basically like drove around Minnesota on a motorcycle with like this beard, and that's what he did in like in his free time. Like so, like months after he was like he was out. He also tried to break like the Cuba embargo single handedly. Like he he went to Cuba and met Castro and like set up trade dealers for deals for like Minnesota farmers. Um Apparently, like the CIA was tailing him when he was there, and I, I actually, I actually have in my room right here, um, one of the because when he was running, he sold beer, like Jesse Ventura beer, to raise money for his campaign. He sold action figures. I actually have one. I actually have one of the action figures still. Um, yeah, man is my hero, and uh, you know, not all heroes wear capes. <laughs> so, uh, so there's, there's, so there's the Rock who's running, uh, maybe. Jared, Thinking it's, I mean, I feel that? like. The, I feel I'm like the thing. Jesse Ventura. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the thing about the age of Trump is like, you know, growing up they always tell you anyone can be president, but now it really seems that way because like three years ago, if somebody had been like Donald Trump is going to be president, you would have been like, fuck the reality TV star, no, nah, no way. But That's now, the Back to the Future I'm, shit. Yeah. I'm telling the truth, Doc. You gotta believe me. Then tell me, future boy. <laughs> Who's president of the United States in 1985? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan? The actor? <laughs> then who's vice president? Jerry Lewis? Yeah, yeah but exactly. Ronald Reagan, though. That was the whole, that was the whole, like, secret thing about that Ronald Reagan campaign is, you know, so what that this is a manufactured thing? Like, it's still better than what you got. You're, you're weak right now, and we, we have a really popular product here. Yeah, yeah but, exactly. But now it's now this is like an even more extreme version of Ronald Reagan. Who I suppose yeah. like, was like Reagan was at least governor and, and he was involved. Yeah. He was like the head of the actors union, even though he was a McCarthyist. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, why not The Rock? You know, I guess. It's, I mean, it's but you know what? Three day work week. That's more radical than most unions. One of my like <laughs> intellectual hobby horses or whatever is like shitting on John Baudrillard. And every day that passes <laughs> makes that more and more difficult for me to do. And I mean, I just keep thinking, like, you know, Baudrillard lives. Mm, Baudrillard yeah. lives. I um, mean, the concept you know, because, of, like, hyper-reality is kind of just, like, an extremely uh, built-up version of reification, if you think about it, or of a spectacle or whatever. Like, it all, no, I mean, all kind of goes to the whole idea of reification and the spectacle he ba- yeah, he basically just like takes the board's formulations and like empties them of like their social content and makes them into like a uh, epistemological issue, which they weren't designed to be. Like it's, it's but I still I, I actually do think Baudrillard's dumb, but like so much of this stuff happens. Kind of idea. Yeah, Baudrillard is the kind of theory that I I don't think that it makes sense to read him literally, and I think there's something disingenuous but like purposefully disingenuous like in a sort of philosophical like troll way to to what he's trying to get at that there's a disappearance of reality like you can't get at it and like the the kind of feeling where you feel like you're on wikipedia trying to sort through political ideologies because you know everyone has an ideology but like but there's just like no there doesn't appear to be like a real path to something that's clearly distinctly true, um, and the way that the the culture at least enforces a numbness that to whatever abilities that we have to really distinguish these things, like you know, like 
that has pretty live like everyday like appeal to people like that that's the concept that i think is is worth getting at in Baudrillard. like i i i that's that's how i have to read the dude because like i obviously his formulations that they're you know are on paper like of course there is a war right like like he doesn't mean it that way anyway another person who i heard was running for president is uh tulsi gabbard uh who's that again she's um representative from hawaii and i guess she got some uh, lefty cred for supporting bernie sanders at the democratic national convention but she also has a lot of um questionable um views on islam and supports hindu like nationalists in india and has a kind of um she's she's against the iraq war but it's from a more um it's not really from a real anti-imperialist perspective and uh people are kind of holding her up as the next um bernie sanders like character in the party i guess saying that she might run in 2020 so i guess she's kind of like their potential left populist candidate well the fact that like you know she gained cred just for endorsing bernie just kind of shows like how low like the barrier to entry is to getting like leftist cred in this country you know like that's like that's not that's not i mean it also shows just how you know corrupt and awful like the democratic party is that you have to like just endorsing like a a primary candidate is like this brave stance you know (laughs) yeah the bar is set pretty low yeah Um, but uh i don't know i just thought it was interesting how um but she does have like kind of social democratic politics but she's completely like she's very against islam and wants to use like drone strikes strategically to take out terrorists and like Obama. Well, like, look, she's very much a proponent of this new kind of war where we don't invade countries, but we just kind of use um, drone warfare to, to focus on specific enemies within countries. Yeah. Well, she's basically on like rhetorical team. Yes, it is about Islam. Like that's that's the camp that she's in. It's of the people who are like who want to really make you know Islam like the central issue. In ter- like the central axis through which to understand politics in the Middle East, right. um, as opposed to you know like say I don't know history or you know uh, political economy or uh, you know like like economic well, analysis. Oh yeah, her whole um, position is that Islam, the ideology, is what's causing this stuff. When when you're ideologically like prevented from like having any kind of cr- meaningful critique of U.S. imperialism then the only possible explanation you can have is, well, Islam is bad. That's why these people do things. Right? They, could, they could just hate our freedom. Yeah. <laughs> it might not actually be about Islam. Maybe, you know, right. it's just a secular hatred. Well, it's only the best you can expect from an American politician is for them to be like, they hate our freedom. You know what I mean? That's. <laughs> but they're, they're past that, though. That's what they said at first because... Right. There was a sizable portion of the American population when like 9/11 first happened who were like, "What the fuck is Islam? Isn't that like <laughs> is isn't that like don't they all wear bow ties and shit? You know. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know now it's you know Islam is it's a bunch of people like on a shitty like VHS recording with like masks on climbing monkey bars. Yeah. 
or you know it's like it's it's the it's the burqa it's the veil it's you know it's like a shot in the desert where there's some warlord and like scary like middle eastern music like playing in the distance as we zoom in like that's what islam is now um and so they can now they can frame it in like a kind of um classical like clash of civilizations crusades 2.0 terms you know or, yeah which is why the far right yeah. is so obsessed with a kind of appropriating the imagery of the crusades yeah yeah they yeah it pretty does much... follow a, this is kind of spanglerian historical narrative where the main yeah. contradiction is between cultures and civilizational cultures and so now it's with the west versus the middle east instead of you know capital versus a proletariat no it's the real struggle in civilization that drives things forward is the struggle between um, Western civilizational culture and like backwards, you know, Islam, you know. Yeah, between like Western secular culture that's made possible by Christianity somehow against like the Oriental, the Oriental Islamic culture that wants to take us back into like a barbarous age of like slavery and shit like that. Like that's the image that like, they sell. Well, people think that like capitalism came out of the the Protestant work ethic. So, I mean, it just you know goes to show how little materialism you're going to expect in a lot of these political science departments. I wonder if you got this like in England, where like people who were a part of like the English, I think it's called like the Anglican Church, were like blaming like the IRA on Catholicism. Oh yeah, like anti-Catholic um, sentiment was is actually very similar back in that time. Um, and then the U.S. as well was very um, was a very big part of a kind of like the xenophobia against the Irish and the Italians. Like in um, England, they had this whole idea that you know they were Anglo-Saxons like to think that of Catholic like to think of Catholics in the same way that like a lot of people think of um, Islam today. So a Hopefully. couple of yeah, a couple other things on like Gabbard. Um... Apparently, like, she did come out for, like, single-payer health care and, like, a few other kind of, like, you know, Bernie Sanders Democrat issues. Um, but, Merck like, Steve... Pan issues. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good point. But, yeah, and, like, like Le Pen, like, Steve Bannon loves her. Um, like, he brought her to the White House to, like, meet with Trump. And he wanted her, actually, to be, like, secretary... This is all according to, like, this Jacobin article that came out recently. He wanted her to be um, secretary of state... Uh, in the Trump administration, or actually, I think that was Dave. I'm sorry, that was David Duke that actually endorsed her for Secretary of State. Oh, uh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. That moment when, yeah. yeah, she also has like a weird, sketchy history on like LGBT issues and um, abortion. Right. Like initially, she had like a do- endorsement or re- recently from like an LGBT activist group but they took it away three years later because she she like answered a questionnaire really kind of off off and apparently she personally doesn't believe in like abortion and that abortion's morally okay and that yeah uh gay people are human or whatever but she objects to like get like doing anything about it on legal grounds i guess yeah, she realized that's a lost battle, and you're not going to get very far in politics like on those issues. So now we got to talk about the immigrants yeah. in Islam now. Mm-hmm. We got to move on to the real issues. Glorious nation. We need to stop fighting in wars around the world so we can, you know, build up American industry and get everyone 
you know, a house in the suburbs and a good factory job where, yeah. I mean, I could definitely, be good. I could definitely yeah. see like the democratic like establishment kind of like considering her as like a viable contender, you know, uh, and kind of giving her like the necessary approval, you know, in order to like function within the party, like on a, you know, primary level. Um, oh yeah. Well, she but, can compete know, with Trump for votes is a thing. Like a lot of people who might have voted Trump in the last election might vote for her instead because her views might be closer to Trump's. Actually, they're to her it's been Trump's. Well, she'd also be more than willing to accommodate herself to American imperialism, exactly. which honestly, yeah. even Ber even Bernie would have done to an extent. I mean, already, oh yeah, Bernie already yeah. does. You know. Yeah, yeah. Jobs also, Bernie, supports, Bernie has like the war weird. For, uh, also, sorry, Bernie. Yeah, also Bernie has sort of weird anti-immigrant views, like he's highly yeah. against open borders, like he labeled it a Koch conspiracy. I think I brought this up before. Open borders yeah. is a, a right-wing Koch brothers concept. <laughs> yeah. oh. This is what counts for progressive in terms of foreign yeah. policy is just that, you know, it's not any principled stance against imperialism. It's that imperialism should be less expensive and time-consuming. Right. It should be yeah, I guess. drone strikes rather than a large army. The Weberian critique of Western imperialism. It needs to be more efficient. I guess yeah. what I'd say is that it just shows what happens when the left kind of responds to right populism with left populism. What you get is just populism and the two kind of stop. I don't know, you, the differences between left and right suddenly become kind of muddled. Yeah, and it just becomes about populism. Yeah, there. I mean, there is something kind of like, you know, third positionist about that. You know, like you can actually you could see the overlap of how somebody like Bannon would be into this lady and think, you know, and think like, oh, this is somebody we can work with. Like she gets it. Also, the kind of is um, the sort of reactionary view of Islam is kind of weird in a way because, really, like ISIS, like there's not really much separating separating like your traditional Catholic or your hardcore, like sort of alt-right member from like an ISIS member in terms of like how they view society. <laughs> can you like, say, can you how they view that? social issues? Yeah. Like, well, basically they both want to pay, they both want a traditional patriarchal society. I think in like this, um, what is it? Submission by Michael Hollebeck. Yeah, that's the book. Yeah, there's this like one scene where I believe the main character is talking to like a, a traditional Catholic who converts to Islam because he basically realized that unlike social issues in general, general worldview, they have more in common than they have like a part, basically. One thing real quick, I just want to say um, that actually sounds also very similar to something that um, like Jay Sakai actually said after 9-11. Oh, my God. Yeah. Where he basically talked about how there were like white nationalists who were like, yeah, the 9-11, they, they killed the Jews and anyone who killed that many Jews can't be that bad, right? <laughs> um, and he basically said like, you know, that the fascist movements like in the Middle East would link up with Western ones, but it's actually clearly gone the other way. Um, Wait, sh should I have explained like the plot of submission before like bringing it up or? Meh. I, I mean, if you want to. I mean, if you it want is to a pretty important novel for like all, the alt-right kind of. To be honest. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's well, up there with Camp of Saints and that sort of thing. So tell me more about this novel because actually I've never heard of it. I've also yeah. never heard of it. So, so basically, 
um it's about like islam taking over france like uh there's like this islamic party that comes to power in like coalition with the socialist with the french socialist party and like society transforms <laughs> over basically overnight like it transforms overnight and like it's kind of painful to read like it basically reads like how the alt-right thinks islam is like generally overall and was this written that, in french originally or is this like an english language? yeah it, no. it, it's a french novel it came out like right after Char the terrorist attack with charlie hebdo and it was called submission yes yeah, submission. submission yeah, there's yeah. Well, that's funny because camp of saints which is an influence on steve bannon which is a kind of a similar plot line where yeah. um islam takes over europe and sharia law gets instituted and it's like a yeah. dystopia of islamic rule over europe obviously yeah. Just an insane idea, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. But the author of like submission is kind of like a dirty French old man, so you get like fucking these like really crude, like crude descriptions of fucking like fifteen-year-old, fourteen-year-old wives in like fucking um, Hello yeah. Kitty underwear and shit like that. <laughs> so it's like Jesus. what. what? Yeah. Well, that makes me wow. that makes me think too. Be, that makes me think too because um the far the kind of the high the most prominent like far left candidate in the last election, uh, Jean Luc Mélenchon, he his party that he started to run was called um for the for the purpose of this election was called Unsubmissive France. Ah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if there's actually a connection there. I mean, but isn't that like a weird thing to like name your party like unsubmissive? Like submissive to what? Like what? Like that? Like that's never entirely clear, you know. Capital yeah. man. I mean, why not just be like the communist mm. party? Then I mean, mm. I think that one was taken. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's already a PCF, and they're basically just. I mean, has that has that has that ever has that ever stopped anyone before though? Like you can have more than one communist party. I mean. There's a shit ton of different communist parties that run. Like, there's like two Trotskyist candidates that like get like five percent every time. I wish we had that in America. Me too. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't think it would change out for that, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I don't, I don't know. That's I know it thing. wouldn't. I know it wouldn't change shit, but it would make me feel a little better. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'd rather <laughs> have some trots in Congress than like only Democrats and Republicans. I mean, I, you know, I, that's everyone looking sometimes in politics, you know, and this might sound weird coming from me. You got to settle. I would settle for trots, you know, in Congress, you know? Hell yeah. Trots what in Congress kind, sounds what awesome. What kind of trots are we talking well, about Pos here? Pos Posadists, obviously. Posadists. <laughs> like, uh, Sparts and Posadists. All right. All right. Like, I'd, I'd take, I'd take Sparts. I'd take Sparts. Sparts have, I don't know if you want to go through the policy proposals of Sparts. You know, in regards to NAMBLA or ISIS, okay. I mean, well, I, will, honestly, I will defend the Spartans on ISIS. I will. I'm not. I will not defend your line on NAMBLA because it's disgusting uh, and incorrect. Why is Why is ISIS yeah. is no, actually ISIS. it's not as bad as people think it is. <laughs> you have to substantiate <laughs> your claim, my friend. All right, let me explain. I actually talked to a member about this. And he explained it to me as we don't actually support ISIS. We view them as a reactionary group, and we want them to be overthrown. But we will not deny that if ISIS shoot down a drone, you know, they are doing an objectively good thing by, you know, helping kick the U.S. out of the area. So they support that aspect, but they don't actually... So they call it military no, support actually, rather than political support. Actually, I think that might be dumb, because... 
you know, like a lot of like the appeal. I'm, uh, I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just saying like the way it's framed by some people is a little like hysterical. I think. Okay. Okay. No, whatever. Whatever, dude. Have said like this. that doesn't really sound all that better. Honestly, like, like like five years ago, I talked to a Spart about their position on Nambla, and they're like, "Well, we're not really for Nambla," and, and I don't think they said. I don't know if they said this exactly, but the, the content of what they were saying is, "Well, Nambla's a reactionary group, but we're we're just against any legislation about people's relationships, and you know, this legislation has been used to target gay people." And they had a really fancy, like, nice sounding. Uh, defense of uh, uh, for Na- for basically supporting but not supporting critical supporting but not really supporting Nambla. Like, I mean, but they they would they wouldn't be the only thing they do with ISIS. That I mean, but that wouldn't they wouldn't be. I mean, the the ACLU actually legally defended Nambla. Yeah. <laughs> so the Sparks are only as bad as the ACLU. The ACLU yeah, exactly. is terrible though. Like like on a lot yeah. of things. Like they're for Citizens United and shit. Like yeah, <laughs> they're. I mean, uh, corporations uh, are people. Under capitalist law, it does make sense. I mean, it's just okay, it's absurd. It's absurd. Like, oh yeah, but capitalist law is absurd. But that's I, no. But I think that's more absurd than even a lot of capitalists are willing to accept. I don't know. I mean, I think. I mean, no, they I love mean, that shit. They love that shit. I they, mean, that, that shit's a law for a reason. They love it. The real question is: Are you willing to stand with Roman Polanski against the state? defend degenerated workers run Polanski fuck fuck Roman Polanski fuck Roman Polanski fuck Woody Allen (laughs) critical support for Michael Jackson Uh, (laughs) he was framed man Uh, he was framed because he was going to lead to the next revolution I actually know people who believe that (laughs) Michael Jackson yeah they thought that Michael Jackson was like this character who was going to unite the whole world to like get through (laughs) and then he was framed he was framed by the government to be um as a pedof- as a pedophile, basically. That's hilarious. Although yeah. my- Michael Jackson was crazy famous in the eighties, though. Like it's it's hard to remember like how, like, anyway. It's like the people who think they killed John Lennon because oh he was gonna be like this figure of unity against Ronald Reagan, so they had to take him out. It's it's that kind of silliness. Yeah. So speaking of that kind of silliness, uh, let's talk about the orb. The orb, yes. Talk about the orb. Little fluffy clouds. Little, little, little fluffy clouds. Yeah. Sorry. If they they played that at the event, this all would have been okay. But so the one thing I want to say about the orb is that because you know there's that image of you know Trump and like all those all the Saudis like having their hands on this go over this orb like some Doctor Evil shit. And so good. But what's interesting? What what kind of blew my mind about this? What kind of blew my mind more than anything else about this was like, okay, so first thing I see that I gotta go because I saw a bunch of memes like, oh, Alex Jones is gonna lose his shit. Alex Jones is gonna lose his shit over this. So I go to I go to Infowars.com. Not only has Alex Jones not lost his shit over it, he they're defending it, and there's like an article basically complaining about how all the people tweeting about it are just a bunch of kooky leftists who just they don't get like. <laughs> and I was looking in the comments, people were like, guys, they're at the museum. Against the uh, that they're at the the center against Islamic extremism that the Saudis built, as if like the Saudis can't build like a center against Islamic extremism and still fund like terrorists covertly, <laughs> you know what I mean? So anyway, I, I like it kind of it kind of blows my mind to see like just how like siloed the culture is getting, where like somebody like Donald Trump 
like the same people who believe in like Pizzagate and believe in uh, crisis actors like at these different events and believe Katy Perry and and you know different celebrities are conducting like Illuminati satanic rituals, you know, like flashing like Illuminati symbols all the time. Like these same people think that like this orb is like, oh, that's you know, that's fine. There's nothing to see here. What do you? What's all this conspiracy talk? But and that and like that's that's how that's kind of like how in the tank for Trump like people are at this point, which is it's it's kind of a fascinating cultural moment to be in. Yeah, because right. if anything speaks conspiracy, it's something very creepy and weird and ceremonial like that. Mm-hmm. Well, it kind of goes along with a lot of these polls that have been coming out. You know, like a lot of a lot of politicos have been waiting to see like waiting for Trump to lose his base, you know? But it appears so far that the Trump base is sticking right with him and just kind of, you know, doing the mental gymnastics it takes to uh, justify whatever stupid thing it is he's doing this time. Because they did, they did it for Bush. They did it for Bush. But, I mean, these people, you know, they probably thought Bush was a globalist lizard person too, but, you know, they were really... They, they're, I. Maybe it's just like an emotional thing. You can't admit when you were when you're wrong or when you've been had or something. But well, and yeah, I mean, we're believers, you know. I mean, yeah, I guess there's two camps here. There's like the, you know, the Alex Jones people and the conspiracy people, and then there's like the kind of normies who support Trump. And right. the, like the normies who support Trump are the same people who supported Bush throughout the Bush administration. Sure. And I mean, and, and that shit show. Um, I mean. I think, like, in terms of, like, fucking up, like, that's, like, a high bar to clear. Like, Iraq is, like, a high bar to clear in terms of, you know, fucking things up. And Trump could certainly possibly do it, but it it almost takes, like, a certain base level of competence to accomplish a disaster like Iraq, um, which I don't know if, like, Trump is really up to that, up to that task. Yeah, people don't realize, I I I guess it's because the entire political class is complicit in it, but just what a, what a disaster, it's probably, I mean, one of the single if not the single greatest disaster in U.S. foreign policy history by, like, their own measures. You know what I mean? I mean yeah, well, people, and that's th- people like us think, like, Vietnam was a disaster because it killed a lot of people, right? Uh. But, 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 like, by their own measures, this was a disaster. But nobody, it, it's hard to really gauge the full scope of it. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, like, technically we won the Iraq War, you know? Like, we beat the Ba'athists, yeah. like, we beat the bad guy. <laughs> But, you know, it'd be like if we, like, beat Ho Chi Minh and then, like, a bunch of, like, groups, like, worse than the Khmer Rouge, like, came up and, like, started, you know, <laughs> taking all this territory. Exactly. Yeah, except, I guess, in that one, they lost and then, then that happened. Yeah, but didn't, like, the Viet Cong or the Vietnamese actually go across the border to, like, stop? Uh, yeah. I'm actually, I'm a little fuzzy yeah, on the history, actually. Well, I, I, yeah, we should look into it, but I, from what I understand, the Vietnamese, uh, saw like, um, I think there were probably Vietnamese people being caught up in the fucking death camps on the fucking, yeah, they, like it was on the border or something like that. You yeah, like, yeah, like, uh, Popot went after like Vietnamese people because he was basically like a Cambodian nationalist and like Cambodia and Vietnam have not had good relations with each other. So he went after Vietnamese people and basically Vietnamese. Vietnam stepped in and said, "You you can't do this shit," and he got overthrown. Yeah, it was also kind of a proxy war between the USSR and China because China backed Pol Pot and the USSR was backing uh, the Vietnamese. But yeah, like basically, the Vietnamese overthrew Pol Pot, so we can thank them for that. 
Sometimes tankies do good things, especially when they kill other tankies. <laughs> yeah, credit where it's due. Credit where it's due. Yeah. Um, do we want to talk about? I guess there's like breaking news that came out like a couple hours ago, as of this recording. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at this article. It's in Business Insider. Um, it says, "Quote: This is serious." Uh, Jared Kushner reportedly tried to set up a secret Trump Russia back channel. Um, I haven't actually totally read this article, so I'm just gonna like read a few excerpts and see if anyone has any like comments uh, on what happened. Um, so it goes: uh, Jared Kushner. Uh, President Donald Trump's son-in-law and top White House advisor was willing to go to extraordinary lengths to establish a secret line of communication be- between the Trump administration and Russian government officials. The Washington Post reported on Friday um, during the presidential transition period leading up to Trump's inauguration, Kushner had held a series of secret meetings with the Russian ambassador to the U.S., Sergei uh, Kislak, and the head of a Moscow bank that was under U.S. sanctions. Uh, in talks with Kislak in December, Kushner floated the possibility of setting up a secure line of communication between the Trump transition team and Russia and having those talks take place in Russian diplomatic facilities in the U.S., essentially concealing their interactions from U.S. government scrutiny, the Post wrote, citing U.S. intelligence officials briefed on the matter. Uh, Ken Kislak uh, reportedly passed along the request to Moscow, and according to the Post's Ellen Nakashima, Adam Entuis and Greg Miller reported that the Russian ambassador was, quote, taken aback by Kushner's request because it posed significant risks for both the Trump team and the Kremlin. Uh, Kushner, who did not disclose the meeting on his security clearance form, is now subject is now a subject in the FBI's investigation of Russia election interference and whether the Trump campaign colluded with Moscow to underline, undermine Hillary Clinton. He also said he also had two previously undisclosed contacts with Kislyak between April and November of last year, according to Reuters. Uh, Good grief, this is serious, said Bob Dietz, a veteran of the NSA and the CIA who worked under the Clinton Bush administrations. This, good this grief. It, it, it literally says good grief in all caps. Uh, yeah. Some, some, I'm, 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 I'm going to play the Charlie Brown like sad Christmas music like, for the rest of my reading of this. This raises a bunch of problematic issues. Problematic. He First, of course, is the Logan Act, which pro- prohibits private individuals conducting negotiations on behalf of the U.S. government with foreign governments, Diet said. Second, it tends to reinforce the notion that Trump's various actions about fired FBI Director James Comey do constitute obstruction. In other words, this is there is now motive to add to conduct. Um, Dietz noted, this is a big problem for the president. Um, it goes on. Uh, a bunch of people, you know, talking about... This is a lot of speculation, and people saying that she's shitty, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so there's that. Uh, anything, any thoughts? As the, uh, yeah, because I think we've, we've, we've expressed, I think, a modicum of skepticism about sure. the Russian narrative, mostly due to the fact that it seemed to conveniently exonerate Democrats for their uh, shitty performance in the election. Uh, quite convenient, or at least it was being framed that way. Uh, did anyone have any thoughts on this? Or, um, Yeah. I, the thing is, uh, so I wrote that article for CLT a couple months ago, arguing that the that the Democrats would use this as an excuse to basically shift blame away from the leaders who so badly fucked up the their the cam, the campaign. But it, there does seem to be something there. It's pretty sketchy. I still have a lot of questions though, like, um, and so I like to hear what you guys think. What do you think the Russia's motive here? If it's true that they intervened on the side of Trump. Uh, what, what do you th- guys think the motive is? Because that's never been sufficiently explained to me. This um, is a revenge for Boris Yeltsin. Like we put we 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 made that drunken dipshit head of their right. country, and it was embarrassing. Now they're making 
this coked out dipshit head of our country to embarrass exactly. us. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I've also yeah. heard the theory that he really did not like Hillary Clinton because of things she did as Secretary of State and supporting color revolutions. And yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that Putin would not like Hillary Clinton, given the whole Ukraine situation. And Trump, they probably, Trump probably has some business. This is my theory, is that Trump probably has, like, he does real estate, right? So he probably has, like, real estate dealings with Russia. And that's why he doesn't want his tax returns to be revealed, because he doesn't want everyone to know that he has a bunch of money that's tied up in Russia. And that seems I don't most know. likely. There's, it's it's most likely that likely. there's some business motive here and that he's made some business deal with the Russians and Putin has given him favorable, like, you know, conditions. If he, I would be. And prevents Hillary Clinton from being president because he, he, he wants, he, you know, he was, Putin was willing to kind of maybe, you know, put his, uh, put his hopes on Trump as being less imperialistic towards Russia, which would help Russia therefore grow as a world power and grow as an imperialist power. And so well, it's, it's, it's really a kind of a struggle between the two superpowers. There's a possibility too here that we're just looking at base incompetence. Like, I think it really is possible that they just didn't know it was like that bad a thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On- it's like arrested. It's like arrested development. Like I may have committed some light treason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, that's true. Liberals love to think um, Republicans and conservatives are stupid, and yet they usually lose to them anyway. But in this case, it seems like Trump is legitimately stupid, and the people surrounding him are legitimately stupid. Like they can't do basic media management, and they can't all be on message. I mean, this is basic stuff for political so yeah for the for the first time ever in the history of the podcast i'm going to read a meme out loud um i think that will like shed a lot of light uh-huh. into what uh-huh. small brain russia colluded with trump larger brain the democrats can't just blame it on hillary flaws a larger brain the cia and nsa are colluding against trump bigger brain trump is a pawn in the battle between the cia and remnants of the kgb Galactic brain. Putin was tasked with spying on Boris Yeltsin in the 1980s and knew he was colluding with the CIA. Knowing this, he entered politics to become Yeltsin's right-hand man after he seized power. Since then, he's been devoted to exposing and destroying the CIA, which he knows killed his country. After killing the CIA and American deep state, Putin will reinstall the Soviet Union and bring about Marxist socialism. Universal brain. Joseph Stalin was the human reincarnation of the Abrahamic creator. The 12 tri- nations of the USSR represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Putin's goal is to reunite the lost nations of the Soviet Union as a holy task. Every action of the American election was cosmically caused by God, also known as Joseph Stalin. The election of Donald Trump was one final move in a complex chess game to create a global communist state. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the most tanky meme of all time. I didn't even think you were done. I didn't even think you were done. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I really like that. I mean, I think, you know, that narrative has a lot. It appeals to, like, the tinfoil hat. Uh, in yeah. Also, I was happy to see the reinstatement of the Soviet Union. I mean, the global communist <laughs> utopia and Joseph Stalin got. I mean, you know, it's, it makes sense because, you know, in the Old Testament, there's, like, some genocide. Yeah. 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 
I think even if the Russia narrative does turn out to be true, then yeah, the Russians try to meddle with us a little bit. It doesn't really explain why millions of people voted for Trump. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's one thing the Democrats are neglecting here, right? The kind of political, the larger political situation that allowed a buffoon like Trump to get in here in the first place. You know what I mean? The kind of, there's, there's, a, there's a rot in the American political system for a guy like Trump to just basically be able to blunder in to the White House the way he did. Yeah. Also, I, the thing with, like, the Russia, with, like, the whole Russian thing, like, it's just, we're still waging a proxy war against Russia and Syria right now, which is, like, I mean, it's sort of nonsensical to a degree because we're literally funding, like, different groups of people that are just fighting each other right now in Syria. Like, well, I mean, our U.S. proxies are fighting other U.S. proxies in Syria. So. Yeah, that that's what it's, I mean. Like, that, 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 hey, that's smart. We can't lose. Yeah. <laughs> that's you. You when you're when you're playing roulette, you 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 spread the bet out to maximize well, your odds of winning. This is a phenomena that Mike McNair points out of when imperialistic uh, imperialist hegemons are in decline, they have this tendency to resort to even more and more rational policies. And Syria almost kind of represents this coming to a head where you literally have U.S. proxies fighting U.S. proxies, you know. And our president is trying to secretly establish diplomacy with the Russians while we are in a proxy war with them. And just people talk about rational state actors, but in the global, you know, system, wherever it's called, it's it really seems like there are no rational state actors because the whole system is just itself irrational. Well, um, actually, all, all, a lot of the uh, a lot of the um, rational actor theorists kind of think of the international kind of situation as being anarchic, and that the only sense in which people are rational is that they're tr you know trying to go after their interests. But the United States is <sighs> the kind of state where it's so fucking enormous. Like the the kind of mismanagement that's possible with a behemoth like the United States, and the and the way that the Trump was able to like hijack the GOP is like, I don't know. It's going to be fascinating. Like in 30 years, like reading like the historical accounts and exposés of like, what was, what exactly the hell is going on with like the different components yeah. of like the American state, like the NSA and the CIA and the F and all these different things that have been kind of like butting heads and at odds with each other, like in different contexts right. and like, what's like, what's going on there, you know? You kind of have yeah. to, in terms of rational actors, I think uh, you kind of have to burrow down beyond the state at this point into different factions within the state. Because, for instance, in Syria, it's like, you know, like CIA proxies yeah. fighting Pentagon proxies, right? So it's, uh, it's you can't really speak of U.S. proxies. You have to speak of, like, subsets of U.S. proxies. Yeah, that's that's one thing about the U.S. bureaucracy is you basically have just all these different departments where the directors of those departments see it as, like, their property, and they're competing to, like, you know, have to reproduce their own, you know, department and do that in a way that increases their own power. Like, I want to compare it to how, like, the SS had, the relationship the SS had to the Weimar, like, and like the old guard of Prussian generals, like basically they all hated each other and were directly competing with each other for power in like the germ in like the German state. 
like under right. Hitler. Try and under undercut so, each other politically and whatnot. Um, do we want to talk about Latin America a little bit? Because uh, there's been some interesting happenings in uh, Brazil and Venezuela. Yeah, I don't have any like thoughts on. Um, so maybe we could start with Brazil. So there've been like this series of you know corruption scandal uh, scandals going on that involve pretty much like all of the ruling parties. And last year there was uh, the leader of the ruling uh, Workers Party in Brazil. Uh, the president was basically kicked out on you know corruption charges, and the right basically took over. Uh, without being elected or anything like that. Um, and they've been trying to basically implement austerity there. And now it's come out that they're all just as corrupt as the president that they got rid of, if not more so. Um, and so basically they don't want to call for an election because um, Lula would basically just win again. Um, but they they pretty much can't stay in power anymore because like the president has like single digit approval ratings. And... <laughs> Uh, basically there's, there's massive street protests and like they've had, they've been like firing like live ammunition at protesters. Um, Jesus. there've been like, you know, there've been a, there's strike waves and all kinds of shit going on. Um, yeah, the president of Brazil actually called out the military to guard the streets, although he had to call them off after a kind of public outcry. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, as I do, whenever I, you know, hear about like political turnover or unrest in a country, I go to the Wikipedia page and I just started like clicking through like the alphabet soup of like different parliamentary parties. Um, and I actually pulled up the, um, the Brazilian communist party, which actually kind of seems to have a pretty interesting history. I don't know if, did, should I talk about this for like a minute or so or? Yeah. Share us your knowledge. Please. Okay. Yeah. So let's see. So they basically, they're old school Marxist Leninist. Uh, they started in 1922 and then, you know, there were different schisms over the years. Uh, eventually uh, they went Maoist and then after that, they actually, after the, that sort of adventurism and sort of dealing with guerrillas, because there were guerrilla insurgencies at various points in the 60s and 70s, um, they abandoned it for um, Hoshism. Uh, they were actually into, how do, you, how, do you, how do you pronounce that guy's name? It's H-O-X. Yeah, I, think, I think it's Hosha. Yeah, so they, they abandoned they, okay. it. Yeah, and they basically said that that guy's holding it down, so we're on his team now. Um, wow. And so they did that for, they did that for a while. And then eventually, what does that mean? Um, I think I think it's super into it. But they basically said like he was like the last exa example, like an ex existing like Marxist Leninist state, and that yeah, Hojaism yeah. is like if you want to be a Stalinist but don't want to like Mao, it's like if you want to be the truest Stalinist possible. Like Albania, he's like, he's like, like the Bordiga of Stalinism. He is. He's like the most pure. If you like want a Stalinist who's pure. And free of opportunism, and Verhoja is like your guy to go to. Yeah, that's that's sort of strange considering like a lot of communist parties ended up like going the way of like Italy or whatever, like just going full Eurocom. Yeah, like, um, Hoja just kind of like doubled down on the Stalinism when other countries were going more in a more soft I, direction. So that's yeah, why anti revisionist. No, like, I'm not. Stalin. I was really like I was that. talking about Brazil. Brazil's party yeah. going that way. Rather. Well, that's kind of what that's kind of what happened after the Soviet Union fell. Um, so basically, once once uh, once once Albania fell, once the Soviet Union fell, they basically decided to open the party up ideologically and to like accept alliances with more groups. Um, and so that's that's kind of what happened. They did go full Eurocommunist. They actually started to 
they basically became interested in like state capitalist theory to describe the USSR, but then they just kind of moved away from those debates more into like practical politics. And I think they actually do have, they have, they actually have uh, 10 seats like in, in their chamber of whatever, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm into Congress. They have 10 seats in Congress. They have one in the Senate. Um, they do have like certain positions within um, in alliance with uh, the workers party in Brazil. Um, but they're, they seem to, I've looked through like a translation of their newspaper and they seem to be highly critical of it. Um, which I think, I just thought that was like a really interesting path for like a communist party to take, to go from like Marxism, Leninism yeah. to Maoism, then to Hoshism, then to just kind of a more like blanket kind of general vague communism. Kind of reminds me of the CPGB PCC because they started out as, um, a faction within the official communist party, of Great Britain. And they had a paper called the Leninist, and they kind of just were orthodox MLs. But then they started questioning the uh, the USSR line, and then after the USSR fell, they kind of ended up, you know, they started getting more involved in critiquing it and trying to come to terms with the 20th century. And so they moved in this kind of Kotsky, early Kotsky, early Bolsheviks, curious type of uh, territory. Now, I mean, none of this is, I guess, is like super germane to like the present crisis in Brazil. But I think maybe describing that might give kind of a sketch of like kind of what is politically possible in Brazil, like currently. Um, the fact that this is kind of like a situated like feature of like their political system for, you know, almost 100 years um, says, you know, what kind of what the boundaries are in terms of like, you know, leftism uh, in that particular country. Um, mm -hmm. So, but I mean, really, they're basically just facing the same problems that every other like kind of mid-level economy and development has been facing since like the great recession uh, and, you know, trying to like carve out a niche in the world market uh, while also, you know, seeking to, you know, balance things out economically. And so, you know, that's why, and the entire reason we basically have the situation is that they're trying to implement austerity and, you know, you know by a regime that is pretty much literally uh, extremely unpopular, the president wasn't elected. And if they, they know that if they, there is an election, they'd probably lose. Um, it's a it's a pretty interesting situation, and uh, I hope that the uh, I hope that the workers uh, are able to actually like assert their power politically. I mean, it's it, I think it's certainly closer to being a reality there than it would be yeah in our situation. Yeah, I think uh, eh, it's probably worth doing more in depth study of the uh, Brazilian left then, because the, uh, former, the, the former president Dilma Rousseff was a. Uh... Apparently, she was actually one of those guerrillas back in the under the dictatorship back in the seventies and was tortured. Yeah, I mean, they're on board. <clears throat> there was a whole generation that had seen many of their best friends lost because they went off on adventurous like guerrilla campaigns mm -hmm. to try to mimic Che Guevara. Like Guevarism really became like a big thing in Latin America, and the Cuban Revolution really inspired a lot of people. But it, they made this mythology of the guerrilla fighter, and, and it just led to lots of young people pulling off stupid adventuristic stuff and, and getting themselves killed. I know they also have a pretty big, um, there's some pretty big anarchist organizations down there as well. Yeah. There's a Brazilian anarchist federation. That, uh, I speak a little Portuguese, so I read their stuff once every now and then. You know, it's not a specificismo or whatever it's called is yeah. the big tendency. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not. It's like anarcho-Leninism. Oh yeah, uh, it's like platformism or something—a kind of soft platformism. Um, 
I think it's for I think it's platformism for people that don't want to admit they're platformists, honestly. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they're they're similar forms of anarchism. They're basically, I think, especially is basically just the Latin American form of like what they call platformism in Latin America. I don't know. They like a lot of them will like openly like take influence from Lenin, for example, which is interesting. Yeah, there's a guy. There's a guy uh, in uh, is it Ecuador who uh, who's named Lenin who just won. I'm gonna look this up. Hang on. Maybe it was Colombia. I'm trying to remember. Hang on. Lenin Moreno. Yeah. 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 Uh, I decided that's a fun little tidbit. Like he must have been a red diaper baby or something. Yeah, I can't imagine that's, that's, that's like what happened. Lenin Moreno me- means yeah. brown Lenin, literally. Really? That's yeah. Pretty, pretty cool. I mean, I, I heard his politics seem pretty weak, but, you know, he's got, he, he, he has no right to be going around with that name, like this shit like that. Anyway. Let's face, let's face it. Everything named after Lenin sucks. Yeah, I guess like, you're right. You know, like, regardless of how you feel about Lenin, like, it's kind of what happened. I get kind of depressed sometimes when I see like, those pictures of like, like Lenin statues just like being replaced by like Darth Vader or like, <laughs> yeah, or like just lang- languishing in an alley somewhere. It's like, come on, he's not Stalin. You know what I mean? Like, give the guy, give the guy a break. You know? But 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 he is not not literally, but the symbol is. You know what I mean? Like that Stalin used Lenin as a symbol. Yeah, exactly. Like that's like Stalin did this in in, in, yeah. in to Lenin in a way. I mean, look, Lenin did yeah. some things, but he didn't he didn't do what Stalin did. And Stalin stamped Lenin's face on everything that he did. Yeah, I guess you're right. And and and, and so yeah, they that the, that the like, Russian what... proletariat have towards you know the state that you know fucking stamped all over their dreams for fucking decades. Like, you know, I guess it's, I know. It, as Marxists, we have to appreciate that. I guess I know how like the uh, people like in the South must be feeling now that like all those like Confederate like statues are going down. It's like I kind of kind of what you mean. <laughs> like I'll I'll never I'll never go and visit the Lenin statue or whatever um, probably because but I I just like to know that it's there. I like to know that I can like stop by and like you know pay my yeah. respects to like the great yeah. man of history. There's there's one in Seattle and I hope it never gets taken down. Yeah, I mean, I I'll, you, I'll admit to wanting to go to see a dope Lenin statue and even I know see Ingle, the gas mausoleum. I know recently, like, in Ingle's hometown, like, the Chinese paid to have, like, an Ingle statue put up. And, like, the people in town were, like, mildly annoyed, but, like, they didn't really care. But it's just, like, it's just wow. weird that, like the, like, the Chinese are, like, spending money to, like, have an Ingle's. Like, there, there's no Ingle statue in his hometown? This isn't right. We got to fix this. It's kind of like what the uh, Soviet Union did with Marx's grave. Marx's family, you know, and had just like a modest grave in the Soviet Union. It's like, what if we put like a big ass bust of Marx and Thesis 11 <laughs> from fucking the German ideology or uh, Thesis on Feuerbach? Oh, dude, I love Thesis on Feuerbach. Yo, we should put a big quote, Thesis fucking 11, Thesis Feuerbach on, on your fucking dude's grave. How do you like it? And they're like, no, can you not do that? Soviet Union, can you please not do that? Or Marx's family, can you please respect our wishes for that? dead uh, father and stuff and they're like nah and so they just put like a huge dope statue of Marx yeah. on there and, and, and like I feel so conflicted because you know on the one hand I had you know I visited Marx's grave and you can see the bomb mark where someone blew it up and there were roses in front of it and I saw that there and it did inspire me to try to you know do stuff but none of that stuff worked and then I found out the Soviet Union like flew that in against the wishes of its family 
I mean, there was compromise, though. There was going to be a water slide in the back, and they took that down. And I think, you know... <laughs> there was going to be the Soviet national anthem blaring all the time. <laughs> it, 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 the, sad, the head was actually going to come to life and say, Welcome to the Mark Karl Marx grave exhibit. I'm this Karl Marx. This block of this property of the workers. And by the workers, I mean Russia. But, um, yeah, like, I, I kind of want to go there and, like, not to visit Mar- Marx's grave, to like, but to spit on Edward Averling's. Because uh, <laughs> I, I, I was reading, right. yeah, I was, I was reading about, like, Eleanor Marx and, like... Horrible. Yeah, and she was brilliant. Like, like, the, like the workers' movement actually, like, lost, like, I think what, you know, they could have been a seriously important figure. Because uh, yeah. that fucking... The Marx girls all just married, like, dead weight. Like, the men they married yeah, were just sad. pure fucking dead weight. It was awful. It's really sad. Like, no, that's worse than dead weight. Like, that, yeah. That dude basically. Yeah, I mean, the, the, they were lucky if they got dead weight. Otherwise, it was, yeah. Anyway, um, do we want to talk about, do anyone have anything to say about Venezuela? You know, uh, it sucks about the oil. Uh, <laughs> I read an yeah. article by George Sicarello Mar where he says that um, the communes are still the way forward. I don't know. He's basically his his argument is basically in Venezuela. There's like the official state, and then there's this whole system of kind of like communes who are like mixture of co-ops and state-owned property, and they have kind of like worker self-management. As it's almost like a parallel. Is his argument that it's like this parallel state of like communal state, and like basically like Chavez like represented what was like a friend of the state and he like was a supporter of it but now he says that like the state is becoming less supportive of them and so i don't know it's it's a weird thesis and i don't really buy into it but chavez just did lasalle (laughs) yeah yeah exactly chavez basically did as a lasalle by just um it's the people's state forming a bunch of um yeah he created a people's state and he created a bunch of um co-ops funded by the state and so george cigarello mar is kind of arguing that these co-ops parallel to the like are like a parallel like dual power structure when really it just sounds like kind of like this lasallian like um state socialist i mean I'm, I'm so sick of that shit i was listening um i was like driving to work last week and like the local like hippie radio station here will like often air like richard wolf lectures mm-hmm. um and he was giving like this like assessment of like the current like geopolitical situation and the way like sort of economics of like the trade relations between us and china structures political relations and it was really on point and i was listening to it and i was like yeah this is this is a really solid analysis and i was thinking you know what God, maybe i'm maybe i'm just a snob like why am, why am i so hard on richard wolf right and it gets it gets to the the conclusion of his analysis and he's like okay now i'm going to talk about what i think is the solution to this um worker co-ops are the way that we can transform this system and he just, and he just go right like right back to like his shtick of like yeah just workers co-ops it's better than like not working at a co-op and and it'll transform the economy and then we won't have capitalism anymore and it's, it's just like oh yeah. god damn it now i remember why i hate him so thanks for thanks for ending on that yeah yeah like the situation like if there was like some kind of alt parallel state where are they? Where are? Why aren't they helping the state? You know, the 
the official state that supported them right now because there's rioting in the streets. There's rioting in the specifically the richer neighborhoods against the government right now in Venezuela. And apparently, supposedly they're getting like CIA funding or something like that. Uh, I, I, I'm not too sure about that, but you know, it seems vaguely plausible, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, I mean, it seems likely that there may be some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of like proto-communization, uh, but that's more of a response to just like how desperate the situation is rather than actual function of like yeah. power or social, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, because it's destined to be taken advantage of by like, the right, basically. Yeah, that's what I kind of got out of Sigaroel's article was that um, these kind of co-op systems, because they rely on funding from the state, rely on the oil monopoly that um, that Chavez has. And so when that um, when, when oil prices dropped globally, that basically meant that this whole parallel state structure or whatever you want to call it just ends up like, it does maybe take on kind of like mutual aid type like characteristics. But like you said, it's because there's just like this really desperate situation where really poor people have to get what they need and it's gonna suck because the resist the resistance to like the government right now right now is basically right wing like it's gonna be right wing in the end yeah yeah i don't know i saw some left com on facebook saying that no the resistance to chavez are actually like the left wing like workers who who initially critically supported him i'm like i'm just uh do you have any evidence that this is true? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I, I bumped into the same thing on Twitter with anarchists. It, it's like kind of pathetic and sad. Like they're basically acting like tankies in the situation. Like they're just like critical support for the rioters in fucking Venezuela. And I'm just like, you people are fucking stupid. I hate you all. Just. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't like, know. Like I, the government's like murdering people in the street, and you like, know, like you, some of these you know, people are probably workers or or proletarians or you know, yeah. non like big bourgeois. From, like <laughs> from from what I can tell, I mean, the rioting is mainly happening. People people are legitimately starving down there. I mean, it's it's a very desperate situation. I doubt that the that the bitterness towards the government is just some like astroturfed CIA. Right. I'm sure that yeah. there's a lot of legitimate grievances that people from all. Oh yeah, but you know it's gonna end up taken over by them in the end. Yeah, it is true that like there's still a lot of capitalists in Venezuela, and they're going to take control of this movement. That I mean, knows. what it, what it really all comes down to is the army. Yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, we'll see. I'm I'm very so interested to see how the crisis in Venezuela unfolds. I mean, they're they're basically going to end up trading petro social democracy for like neoliberal shit in the end. Well, the thing that worries me, and I I guess where Patrick is coming from is just that if there is this kind of, um, if there is a color revolution in Venezuela, it's not going to be like a left-wing revolution. It's going to be like a Uh, a brown revolution. Yeah. It's it's going to be like a, a, you know, it's going to be a very violent, repressive revolution against the left. Because there are still a lot of um, people who are critically supportive of the government just for that reason alone. And 
the government, you know, if there's a new government, all these trade union leaders and all these um, working class activists are going to be um, targeted and attacked. Yeah. And it's just going to be a disastrous situation for the left in Venezuela in general. Very similar to um, the problem in Chile. But, you know, for, first is tragedy, then is farce, am I right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I'm not saying that, you know, we need to, like, you know, support Maduro or whatever, but I am saying that there's really not a good... This is the situation is just overall bad. There's really no one to cheer for here. The only way the, only way the situation resolves itself in any kind of thing does it, like resembling something decent is oil prices shoot back up, because um, that's the only way they'll be able to buy food and like buy off a sufficiently large chunk of the population to support the regime. Yeah, well, as long as the Saudis have the tap where they got it right now, it's not happening anytime soon. So exactly. They also have to expropriate the bourgeoisie fully. Wow. What an episode. Did you learn anything? I know I sure didn't. Well, I guess I did learn about that Mick Foley had like a unionization arc in the WWF in the 90s. I feel like that's something I should have known. Something I should look into more. Also, you know, the Brazilian workers' movement. Join us next week. We're going to actually discuss Jay Posadas and his groundbreaking article, Flying Saucers, The Process of Matter and Energy, Science, the Revolutionary and Working Class Struggle, and the Socialist Future of Mankind. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can like us on Facebook or leave us a review on iTunes. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>